One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's start, though, with a day of unprecedented action from the Premier League, who have charged Manchester City with over 100 breaches of its financial fair play rules. This isn't just about how much money they've spent in the transfer market and how much money they've paid for players. This is a much bigger picture that goes back over many, many years. Tidigare i februari såg nyheten ner om att Premier League anklagar Manchester City för att vi över hundra tillfällen brutit mot ligans finansiella regelverk och att klubben kan riskera att straffas hårt. Tarik Panja som är författare och journalist för bland annat New York Times har bevakat City under många år och i podden berättar han om att han är förvånad över att Premier League väljer att gå ut så hårt mot ligans stora dominant de senaste åren och säger att det som nu sker är ligans största kris någonsin. In a way, there's no going back from this for the Premier League's reputation, for Manchester City's reputation. Um, there will be fallout, whichever way this thing goes. It's so big. Och vi talar även om sportvett och det VM som nyligen avslutades i Qatar där Panja menar att Qatarierna till stor del uppnådde sitt mål bakom att vilja arrangera VM i fotboll. For Qatar, I think that gives it a degree of legitimacy and a degree of safety. Um, and I say safety um, in terms of its sovereignty. Och så talar vi om FIFA-organisationens utveckling under president Gianni Infantino. Där Panja menar att vissa saker inom organisationen blivit bättre. Men även en del sämre sedan Infantino tog över efter Sepp Blatter. What has been quite clear is Gianni Infantino's FIFA has a president, I would argue, that is more powerful in some ways than Sepp Blatter was. Och den är naturligtvis mer än så här. Vi pratar om Super Leagues framtid och varför Panja är förvånad över att vi inte haft större diskussioner om den ekonomiska ojämlikhet som präglar fotbollen. Och vi talar om senfärdigheten om att rapportera kring Ryssland och Katars baksidor kopplade till VM och 
för Norges Lise Klävenäs en frisk fläkt på den internationella scenen när det gäller fotbollsledare och om utvecklingen inom UEFA, FIFA och världsfotbollen. Men som vanligt behöver vi podden med en fakta ute. H? 42. Where do you live? London. Family? Me. Education? Yes. The university, school, high school, local. Salary? Enough. What do you drive? Um, I don't. Bus, walking, cycling. Nothing. What do no, you... no expensive limousines for me. I'm afraid. What do you read? Newspapers. What do you watch? Oh, uh, good one. Um, the thick of it. What do you listen to? Um, podcasts. Uh, in Sweden, we usually ask, what do you play? And it can be an instrument or you can bet on games and things. Uh, do you have anything you play or do you bet on things like sports? Oh, uh, no. Not at the moment. Um, I would love to play football. What would you rank as your biggest triumph in football? If you have a background in somewhere in uh, your life uh, playing yes. football. The Brent Cup final... 1997. Did you win? We just about won. The only thing we won in my in my school all those years. Uh, what's your favorite team and why? Um, these days, I really enjoy going to see Argentina play and it's nothing to do with what's happening on the field. It is the sound of that crowd. It gets to me every time. Um, so during the World Cup, all the games, you, you're kind of obsessed with what's happening in the stands. Um, wherever they go, whether, whether they're at home, whether they're away, that travelling support is incredible. Who is the best player of all time, in your view? Because you decide these things when you're a child, I will stick with Diego Maradona. Which rule in football would you like to change? Um, none. I don't think I have the the intellect for for something as significant as that. What would you classify as your best experience when it comes to a football game? Going back to to the school days, playing uh, with my friends and, and and having games where you you enjoy yourself and you you end up winning. Uh, a local cup that was really enjoyable. On what occasions do you lie? Um, when I'm on my diet. Which was your best subject in school? History. Which living person do you most admire? My mother. If you had to change your job, what would you do instead of being a sports journalist? I would panic. Call for some help. What do you think? What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, 
I have no idea. Getting up, going to work every day, doing it again the next day. Great uh, to have you on the podcast finally. And uh, last time when we had set a, a, a time, uh, something happened that does in uh, in this uh, business. And uh, I could add some questions. Premier League charging Manchester City over 100 uh, breaches. What was your reaction when uh, the news broke? Well, I was clearing out my grandmother's garage, so I was uh, very surprised. Um, it was a, a Monday morning, and it, these these things always happen at an inopportune time. My my um, reaction was, "Oh bloody hell! Did this have to happen right now?" Was uh, my reaction, I guess, but. Um, we have to see what happens with the charges and whether the panel that will hear the case come to the same conclusion as the Premier League clearly has um, of serial rule breaking over multiple years. Look, as a as someone who has covered the story for a number of years, has seen some of the evidence, has reported on this. Am I massively surprised in terms of the, the 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 allegations? No. Am I surprised that the Premier League um, acted so strongly at 115 charges? This is potentially the biggest crisis in, in, in the league's history. The league was formed in 92. I can't think of anything bigger. This is the champion club. It is hugely significant. This is such a big deal. So I'm surprised that they have followed through with perhaps where the evidence was was pointing because in a way there's no going back from this for the Premier League's reputation for Manchester City's reputation um there will be fallout whichever way this thing goes it's so big yeah, Pep Guardiola was uh, very defiant how what were you, what was your reaction to his uh, press conference to be honest, I, I'm not very surprised by him now. He's been um, kind of the biggest public um, defender of, of the club. And this is the thing about being a football manager, particularly in England. Um, Antonio Conte said something about in other countries, you have other figures with within these clubs who, who speak for the club directors of football, other executives. There is something about English football that, you know, whether you call them the head coach, the coach or the manager, this person becomes the singular figurehead for the football team. And Pep Guardiola with Manchester City has been on the front foot when it comes to this issue of financial fair play. I was... I was not surprised, but I questioned some of the content of of um, his reply. You know, I will give you an example if you want. He claimed that, you know, they have been litigated before at CAS and cleared of wrongdoing. Now, I think words are quite important. I don't think the CAS cleared Manchester City of wrongdoing. Um, and the CAS is the Court of Arbitration for Sport. 
Um, for some of your listeners, that would be the top court in sport, the last stop, if you want. And what happened there was UEFA had punished Manchester City, if you remember, and banned them for two years. They took the case to this court and they didn't clear Manchester City. What they said was the case was time barred. It was too late. The the investigators um, were looking at things that happened too long in the past, according to UEFA's rules. So they threw that part out. The other thing that court did was fine Manchester City 10 million euros for non-cooperation with the investigation. Now, I don't know if you were 100% sure of your probity, of your innocence, you just cooperate, get it done, show everyone everything and we move on. That's not happened and it hasn't happened here. The Premier League investigation is incredibly um, into was incredibly into its fifth year by the time this you know restaurant menu of charges was announced by the by the league um on that monday morning it's incredible five years in that time from the start of the investigation this team has won three league championships it's it's mind-boggling do you see a scenario that we've seen in Italy where Juventus was stripped, uh, Calcio Poli stripped of two league t- titles, and now they're docked 15 points, even though they have a large an appeal? But do you see uh, something like that happening to Manchester City? It's a really good question. Um, we're in uncharted territory here when it comes to English football. We've seen Juventus and Calcio Poli, you mentioned. Um, get the relegation. We've seen Juventus now have this 15 points for this capital gains um, issue. Potentially even more points could be deducted at Juventus for separate accountancy um, allegation related to their player wages. Now, what the Premier League is able to do, or this panel has the power to do, is quite broad. There could be points deductions. There could be um, um, transfer market bans. And there's this provision that allows for the league to expel uh, a member, one of its teams, for a serious rule breach. Now, if you look at the allegations, 115 in total, they date back to more than a decade So essentially, the league is alleging that this champion team that has been the most dominant force, that has been lifting its famous trophy up more than any other team in the last uh, decade, has corrupted the world's most popular football league. So what could be the punishment? Now, we mentioned being expelled. What does that even mean? Where do you get expulsion? Expulsion doesn't mean relegation. Expelled means we throw you out. And then are you saying then the championship, the English Football League, the lower division will then just say, okay, you can come in here now? Or will they say, well, if you're not good enough for the Premier League, if they've expelled you, why would we take you? So it does make you wonder what what the penalty and how serious it could be and how far, how far reaching it could be. What I don't know is if they are found guilty of all of these things, a big if, Manchester City obviously deny all these allegations and 
but now we have to take them for their word. But what happens to this 10-year record of success, all the trophies won, all the titles? Pep Guardiola said, whatever happens, Manchester City and its fans can consider, some, consider themselves winners of, of all of these triumphs. And for those fans, uh, those Manchester City fans, they will always have these memories of being in the stadium, um, watching Sergio Aguero score that last second goal to, to win the league in, in, in 2012 and the last day of the season. It must have been magnificent. A, a statue of him has been erected in the stadium and all of these things. But God, you know, I don't know what it how I would feel knowing all of this. Does it it would certainly feel tainted for Pep Guardiola, who's, you know, obviously is seems to be as good as um uh speaking as he is as, as coaching. For him it seems like there's no problem. How has it been to cover this as a journalist uh, quite closely? I know your colleague Rob Harris asked uh, Pep Guardiola at the press conference uh, before or after an FI Cup final. He was kind of agitated. I know supporters have been uh, agitated against the uh, journalists covering this. How how have you? Uh, uh, what have you felt when you've covered this story for many years? Well, I see. It's a really interesting story. So take away all the, you know, identities of teams and and and, and characters and people. You know, um, I found it a fascinating story. That on the one hand you've got this, um, you know, enormously important country buying into a Premier League football team, um, essentially building a behemoth of a club from 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 nothing and the the at least the appearance of this kind of rule breaking scheme it's very interesting so from that point of view yeah um i was very interested to do this and then you look at whether the governing bodies whether it's the premier league or uefa the, the governance structures of of these these sports that for many people, they they form the bedrock of their lives, for better or for worse. Maybe you could say it's just people running around kicking the ball. It shouldn't really be that important. But millions of people are so passionately moved by this. The importance, so the importance of the rules here, that what they're seeing is true and they can believe what they're seeing, is is again a really interesting thing to cover and to see whether these organizations are able to, to enforce their rules at a time when the actors they're enforcing their rules over are nation states, very powerful countries, very rich people. It is a fascinating story to cover. Um, and, 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 I, and I've kind of um, found that uh, like a privilege to do. The, the timing as well in this so social media age is, is also... Um, Kind of forms a part of this story in some way because the the um tribalism inherent in football whether it's any club big or small you get a sense that the the fans of doesn't matter which team in this case we're talking about Manchester City they want to believe so much and defend so much the position of their team that um and you you see that sort of blow up on on the internet on social media and forums with Generally, it's 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 fine, but the um, 
I guess some of the more abusive messages and, and um, the um, the type of vitriol at the reporters covering this story has sometimes been quite exaggerated, I think. But again, that also has offered us a glimpse of how these platforms work and the challenges for you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, like we're, we're talking about these bigger, broader societal issues. And sometimes you see it distilled through football. And the Man City case has been been quite interesting um, in terms of dealing with um, the problems that are brought to bear on social media. Are you ever afraid when you get threatened? No, not really. And I, again, um, I haven't had a reason to, to be, no one's, um physically you know come into my space this is behind a screen um it's unpleasant sometimes and i think all, all of us i think you as well i'm sure you you'd see uh, um some some of this stuff it feels like it's part of the job i guess but you don't need to read it all <laughs> it's a it's a choice as well isn't it you know what what's um What's clear, I suppose, is um, people feel very passionately about about um, these issues, about their teams, and, and that's clear. It, the, the fact that people are able to use this cloak of anonymity, which which social media affords, to, I guess, um, post, you know, abusive, you know, violent imagery, racist language, etc. That real shame um and it's something that again it's nothing to do with this story but it's a, it's an issue for these platforms that the the anonymity element that this this platform affords is you know gives rise to to this type of abusive behavior on the other hand in good faith if if these people um and the public it's great that they're able to verify and question what we're reporting. Like, if we've made a mistake, I'm more than happy for for for, for people to point it out, or or if if there is valid criticism, then I think I think it's great. Um, it helps us to maybe acknowledge our mistakes or or um, or do better as well. Uh part of the, or a lot of this uh, information around Manchester City that was first uh, used by UEFA and then by the Premier League it comes from football leaks and a Portuguese hacker who might have used it as a tool for blackmail and uh, do you think that diminishes the value of the information and how do you think as a journalist taking part in using something that might be stolen it's a good question, but if you remember going back, we didn't know, um, and I don't think any journalist directed Rui Pinto, the Portuguese guy you mentioned, John from Football Leaks, to um, to hack anyone. There wasn't like um, a team of journalists, uh, you know, um, re controlling this remote controlling this young Portuguese kid to say, okay. Today's Man City, you go for it, you get, get in here, now you go for FIFA, go for UEFA, go for um, Zenit St. Petersburg or, or, or George Mendes. So 
if you remember, this information just appeared on the internet. And that's in the public domain. And if you can verify and you can use it, well, fair to, fair to use in that context. Um, but here's the, I don't believe he's a whistleblower though. So this is the um, kind of philosophical issue that you raise here about this guy and what he's done and is he a hero or etc. I kind of ambivalent completely on, on, on this guy because I don't believe if you speak to his lawyers, they will say this guy is a hero and a whistleblower. I find it very hard to see this guy as a whistleblower um, and not for the kind of alleged extortion attempt on um, on this Portuguese agency that he was currently being tried in Portugal for. He He's just some guy who is clearly very skilled at, at extracting confidential documents from individuals and companies. There is no great connection. He's not someone from who's risking his career in football or whatever, or, or whatever industry where you would find a traditional whistleblower. His... If we say this guy is heroic and a whistleblower, I, I I think there is a risk that what you're saying is, Olaf, you must hack everyone you know, just in case they've done everything wrong. So go into a break into everyone's house, check everything without their permission, and and if the people who have done something wrong, you publish that stuff. I don't know if that's this kind of society you'd want to live in. Um, that's one. On the other hand, right, this information is out there. And what do we ignore it? It's there. It, it's, it's led to tax investigations in many countries that have resulted in fines of millions of euros it has exposed these um, fiscal arrangements, which in, in, in several cases involving some of the world's most popular football players and coaches were illegal. We have this issue in Switzerland with Gianni Infantino and the, I guess now former Swiss Attorney General, Michael Lauber, which again, Gianni Infantino and FIFA insist that he is innocent and this is a, um, a, a a trumped up case, but it's led to an investigation into the Attorney General of Switzerland, at least, and his being removed. It has led to, I guess, numerous investigations within football. And it has led to this case involving Manchester City, the most successful club in the most popular league in the world being accused of breaching um, the rules. And that's really important, the word rule, isn't it? Because football is a game of rules. 11 players on each team, um, same number of substitutes, and you play on a relatively level playing field. If one team is playing with 13 players and everybody else is playing with 11, Yes, that's something that needs to be tackled. And this information is out there and it's being used. Um, so it's a really long answer. 
to say the you know I'm sorry, but you know the information is there uh, and it's and it's available. But but the idea that we should all go around hacking each other in the hope that we catch things, I think is 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 really worrying. If that's what we're celebrating. One part of this with Manchester City and the Premier League, uh, some people mean or say that the Premier League is is the Super League, uh, the 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 trial that trial that was uh, folded two years ago, and now there's a new version from the company A22, and they're also challenging UEFA in the uh, European Court of Justice. Uh, will we have a Super League? What do you think? I, I think I agree with the fact that um, the Premier League is a Super League. You only have to look at the um, most recent transfer market, if you want. I mean, it might be a bit extreme, but Chelsea's spending more than the Bundesliga, La Liga, Liga, and um, uh, Serie A altogether. All speaks to the fact that there is this one enormous monstrosity when it comes to financial firepower and and then and then the rest players tend to gravitate towards whoever's going to give them the biggest paycheck so there's kind of this inevitability to to the dominance of the premier league um is that a problem for english football probably not is it a problem for european football and world football massively yes dominant it was huge if you if you if you look at it if you only have this one one poll because it will effectively render all the other leagues to feeder leagues for for this one league and all these big name teams we've already seen in smaller countries this this effect where teams like ajax etc already you know that this great history is is now a that they're the supporting cast for for the for the richer bigger teams so yeah i think i think there is an issue here um but this is a job for i think they've been asleep for uefa for um the fifa and the people who are supposed to be like these big thinkers of of the game because the thing that makes football kind of interesting is the um doubt before kickoff who's going to win who's going to lose and there is an inevitability that if if a handful of teams have all of the best players you know they should win all the games and there is a danger that we're going to really destroy the mystique or surprise around these 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 matches the the tool they seem to have found, although they all say they haven't tried to tackle this, is is this financial regulation of FFP and and things like things like this. I think the people that are thinking about football should be a bit more creative. What their what their greatest power is is, is are the rules of, of sporting rules, because it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't get around sporting rules because financial regulations. We're talking about some of the most well-capitalized funds, individuals, countries in the world with all the resources they have. Whichever financial rules you've probably come up with, they'll have greater ways of getting around those. So what? why for the last 20 years no one has really tackled issues like um, the transfer market, how many players 
each team could transfer, for example, how many um, players should come from the academy into 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 their into their teams. Just this issue of distributing more of the world's talent into more of the teams surely would would create a, a better spectacle. But I'm not seeing any of these ideas beyond the, these fiscal measures. I mean, one of the reasons for Super League, for some of the teams, I believe, is the fact that this fear of state, even though that you know you had uh, Man City and in, uh, in, in that group of Super League twelve, is the fact that they wanted tighter fiscal uh, control. So if you're backed by a team that just has to turn a gas tap on to buy your best player, that 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 is a problem. So I think that pushed some of the the, the the teams towards Super League. And this idea, I think governments need to pay a bit more attention to what football clubs are for, what they mean, who are they for, some type of um, regulation or rules over who owns these teams. And Because to me, it seems completely free market capitalism. A football team is exactly the same as, um, you know, a... Uh, a department store, uh, you know, a, a machinery company. But you know, I know, and I'm sure people who are interested in, in, in football or listening to this would know that a football team carries a different level of identity and emotion to any of this stuff and should have been safeguarded and protected. We haven't seen this at all at European Union level. We haven't seen this at all at national government level. We're kind of seeing some of these conversations now, but maybe it's too late. I, d I don't know. But I don't know why we're having this conversation in 2023 and not 20 years ago. No, and kind of <clears throat> probably saw the big picture. Uh, I know you've written a, a book also, Football Secret Trade, and uh, you've been a journalist for uh, AP and Bloomberg and Manchester Evening News also before yeah. you came to New York Times. So what made you uh, going into uh, working with sports and then uh, football and uh, internet? This part of the... Uh, Sports, that's not only what happens on the field, mostly about what happens outside of the field. Yeah, well, um, I wanted to be, a, as a kid, I love football, um, like probably millions of others, and I love newspapers. Um, so that kind of followed that destiny a little bit. But then I, you start growing up a bit and you have other interests. Um, and the the broader kind of place of sport and this 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 role of football in 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 that broader sphere of the economy uh business um diplomacy you see it you see it kind of as this bridge between all sorts of other sectors it's it's fascinating and the my career has kind of evolved that way with my interests and i think this part of the game, for better or for worse, in many ways for worse, has just gotten bigger. Um, it's 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 um, the kind of actors that we're dealing with, you just wouldn't have thought so 10, 15 years ago. I mean, look, I remember <laughs> how many people have heard about a place called Qatar in 2009, for example. And, you know, you, we're going back to books. We're talking about your book now. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, between, you know, um, 2000, 2009, before this this country had started bidding, how many times would you um, have 
had said the word Qatar in a conversation with anyone or written it down in a piece of paper. Um, I, it's incredible where, where where the game has gone in 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 the period we've been covering it. Do Do you think that the journalists, in general, were kind of late into that sports washing? At least I feel that we were the late in it in Sweden, covering it, taking up the problems. I mean, we had. Slatan Ibrahimovic playing for Paris Saint-Germain, Qatar finance, but no one asked him about uh, a question about that. But today, when Alexander Isak joins Newcastle, owned by Saudi Arabia, it's natural to ask uh, Isak uh, or Henrik Stenson leaving the Ryder Cup for the live tour. He gets kind of, yeah, people didn't like that in Sweden. But it's changed. Uh, do you think uh, that journalists globally were late, or was it only... Some parts. It's, it's a good question. Depends. I don't know where different nations were in different points in terms of where the media were. But I, I remember just before the World Cup, we had to write, you know, this journey, this thirteen-year journey to 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 this tournament in Qatar. And I I was talking to someone who was involved with the um, the Qatari bid and about the preparations they were making and for the media and they were doing all this planning. And they said, you know, we were really surprised because nobody was asking us about really about human rights, um, our migrant workers, um, when we say human rights, the LGBTQ issue as well. It didn't really percolate in the media during that bidding period um, because most people were so obsessed with it's so hot that it's unfeasible. You know, the sort of place where you, you know, fry an egg on the bonnet of a car and it's so tiny. How, you know, like the the kind of, just the general ridiculousness of taking this tournament to this place. Equally, the human rights organizations, Amnesty and the others, I don't remember this great conversation Maybe because none of us thought they were actually going to win this thing at that period of time. And then they did. And let's not forget, we're talking about a bunch of sports reporters as well. Not from the Middle East, but from, from um, in, our, in our case, uh, I'm talking from London and, and you know, you're normally in, in Sweden. Um, how much of the Middle East did you and I, had we covered it as, you know, in great depth? Not much. Uh, if I, you know, if, if we're honest, what Qatar winning the World Cup does, though, is put a lens on this stuff. It gets us to focus on it, learn about it, tell stories that maybe without football, without the enormous platform of a World Cup, nothing bigger than that, might not have been told. So you 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 have this, and the news guys, I guess. We're not looking at this place in the, in, in the same way. Um, the importance and relevance of the Gulf more broadly has become of an order of magnitude that football or not is at a different level to where it was before. Look at look at global trade. Look at um, where deals are being done. Look at who's investing where. Any major deal, what do we hear? We hear Saudi Arabia, we hear, you know, um, United Arab Emirates, one of their 
fund Mubadala or whatever, you hear Qatar and QIA. We didn't hear that the same pitch in the same volume as we are in the subsequent years. And with that comes the questions of asking Andreas Isaac about human rights because of that journey we've all been on, as have these countries. Uh, do you reckon that uh, if you look now, the World Cup of the women and men is going democratic countries, uh, Euros, the Olympics, also democratic uh, countries, uh, the coming uh, uh, championships and games. Uh, do you still think that sports washing is here to stay, that we, that's something we will have to cover? Yeah, because it's become part of our lexicon. We we kind of understand this this idea a bit better. And again, the, the language is a complex one. I think sports washing might be a little facile in terms of explaining everything, what the interests are. Because look, again, because the Qatar World Cup was so recent, people would say, well, how could you say they're sports washing when... So there were so many negative stories about about Qatar and um, you know the the pressure on them to change their labor laws and the the the, the, the um, exposure of how they've exploited migrant workers the the very negative tone um, over the over the period. It depends what each of these countries is looking to get. I think, and I've become kind of more um, firm in my belief on on, on this point. Is this Qatar at least? It, it it needed to be known. And and again, I go back to the fact that Olaf, you and your friends had never said the word Qatar probably until 2009. Now, um, everybody knows this place. Yet it's smaller than Yorkshire. It's 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 so known. You know, I don't know if you do a list of countries and you you go to people in the street and see what rank it will be in terms of being known, but I would say it's fairly fairly high to to anyone anywhere in the world. And and for Qatar, I think that gives it a degree of legitimacy and a degree of safety. Um, and I say safety um, in terms of its sovereignty. We've had the Gulf blockade, for example which happened in um, 2017, 2018. Uh, and that potentially was an existential crisis when you have this enormous neighbor, Saudi Arabia, um, this kind of idea that there is a possibility of being invaded and being crushed and just disappearing. But then you think, hang on, aren't they hosting the World Cup in two years? Like they're, they're known, the whole world is writing about this place. It does give you a, a safety that maybe, you know, like 1991, Gulf War, Iraq, Kuwait, how many people would have had that concern of Kuwait being invaded this place you've not heard of? Whereas Qatar, the 2022 World Cup host, it gives you this, this, this safety through notoriety as well, if, if you want. So I think we, this sports washing is more complex and the, the, the reasons to do things aren't just to have a good image. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, migrant worker when you uh, covered uh, Qatar in a, in a critical way what was the reaction from readers because I felt that sometimes people some people wanted uh, us to focus on the sports just and others thought we were unfair to uh, Qatar compared to how we showed Russia in 2018 how was it for you I think um, probably broadly in a, in a similar sense to you. There's some people who just want people to stick to sports and, and, and you know, stop ruining my enjoyment. And it's the same when these countries buy Premier League football teams or, or League or Paris Saint-Germain or whatever. It's just stop being so negative. Can't we just enjoy the football type of um, reaction? But, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, football has become a crucible for a lot more than people running around. This is where, you know, nation states come to play, nation states come to um, speak to the world. And we have to cover this stuff. It's important because the platform is so big. It's it's, it's here to stay. Um, then you have the the... the the claims that this is, as you said, um, targeting of this particular country. And I think there's a simple response to, to that is don't host the World Cup. If you're going to bring the world's biggest microscope 
to your country or to your region, people are going to look through the lens. It brings us all there. So the coverage is completely normal. I think it, you hear some of that criticism from Qatar that it's being unfairly targeted. Um, and I, it's either naive that they didn't think this was going to happen, you know, or it's bad faith in terms of the, the response. I think the, the, the fact that they got this focus is completely normal. And the fact that this place was, it, it's just kind of so um, absurd as well. <laughs> this tiny, tiny place. It's a, it's a really interesting story. Um, and then your point about Russia, I think in some ways is is valid in that maybe there should have been greater scrutiny. I think there was some scrutiny, but again, it didn't seem on the balance of absurdity so strange that a major international country with, you know, facilities and, and, and a population of the size of Russia's would host a major sporting event. It's kind of normal. There was the absurdity factor to Qatar, I think, is 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 a is that makes it more more kind of interesting from a from a reporting perspective. What did you think? No, I, I agree with you, but in hindsight, Russia, my, maybe we should have covered the political part better than we did, at least from a Swedish standpoint. I don't, I feel it was pretty much the same international. It's mostly afterwards that there's been a lot of criticism about medals to uh, Infantino and so on. And I mean, Putin had uh, invaded Krim just a couple of years yeah. before. That in in hindsight, we should have maybe covered that part a little bit. Uh, regarding Qatar, one thing uh, both you and I were there when Infantino held his opening statement to a press conference. It was the longest opening statement uh, of the press conference I've ever experienced. I think it was 58 minutes or something. Many people in Sweden don't understand how can Infantino have um, the power of the FIFA, and you've covered FIFA for many years, good sources and so on. How do you explain that he has this great uh, control of FIFA? I think it's quite easy. FIFA, the FIFA system is 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 not very complicated. It's two hundred and eleven national FAs. So the only people that really mattered to him or any president or aspiring president are two hundred and eleven national FAs. If you think about this, the global enterprise that is football, the, all those broadcasters, all those players, all the public, the media, the whole the whole gamut, the billionaire owners of football teams, the small owners of football teams, um, you name it, none of them count when it comes to choosing who is running FIFA. And I remember Gianni Infantino, when he was running for FIFA in 2016, after the fall of Sepp Blatter, you see this manifesto that was produced, this document about you know what he he will bring, and he, in very bold writing, 
said, your money from FIFA will be, I think, if I remember correctly, four times higher than it was under Sepp Blatter. And it was a higher amount than the person that was described, not by me, by the way, as the favourite for that election, Sheikh Salman, who's the AFC president from Bahrain, was offering. And Gianni Infantino won the FIFA presidency. Today, the amount he is giving out is seven times more than what FIFA gave before. And FIFA's argument is well, this is all football development money. This is for the good of the game and for the growth of football. But let me ask you this. If you were, had a pool of development money, why would you give every single country exactly the same amount of money, no matter what their needs were? Would it not be a, a needs-based system to do the most efficient way of using this money? The best way, the most beneficial way is FIFA's goal is to grow football and develop football around the world. It would have a team of experts and it would know where to put this money. So why would, I don't know, Guam, this, this little island um, in the middle of an ocean, get the same money from FIFA? What, what you have, I think, in, in the FIFA system is the same as, as before. It seems impervious to change because very few people want to rock the boat. Everyone's getting something, if if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, when it when it comes to elections, there are so many um, national federations that very rarely will anyone publicly, you know, privately. You hear so many frustrations. Very rarely does anyone ever want to speak publicly, and that tells you that there is a a culture here within this um, system. Is it better uh, or worse now than compared to Blatter? I mean, I think in some ways, in some ways, it's 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 better. I guess in some ways, it's worse. It depends depends what what, what we haven't seen. This is a major institutional change that I think this this organization required. You know, what I find quite interesting, for one example, I guess, and it's kind of specific to Gianni Pantino, the FIFA president, rather than anybody else. At the time of the FIFA scandal, there was a, a major reform movement because FIFA was shaken to its very core. You know, you have vice presidents arrested, the FBI involved, the Department of Justice, um, Swiss authorities. This is an existential issue, right? So you have um, a reform committee set up. And among the people on this reform committee is a certain UEFA general secretary, Gianni Infantino. And one of the major planks of, of the reforms that were published, and it was led by, again, a very you know, significant sports insider. He's now um, passed away, the former IOC legal director, Francois Carrard. So whenever there was this issue, you call in Monsieur Carrard to, to try to clean up the mess. And Gian Infantino was on, on this panel, this committee, and, and it's it's its proposals and its agreed document for the new FIFA, one of the most significant was this effort to reduce the power of the president. You have a kind of more um, 
guiding hand, a kind of uh, a, a president who wouldn't be involved in all the day-to-day -day major decisions, not involved in, in almost running everything, and a, a greater amount of power delegated to a CEO-type general secretary. What has been quite clear is Gianni Infantino's FIFA has a president, I would argue, that is more powerful in some ways than Sepp Blatter was. It is a very much an executive president and an, and an office that has been guided by, an organization, sorry, that's been guided by the presidential office. I think the secretary general of FIFA, Fatma Samura, has no way near the same amount of power as her predecessor, Jerome Valka, um, it did. Now, why does that matter? It matters because the reforms to improve FIFA and to change FIFA were were clear in, 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 in what they mandated FIFA to do, and it just has not happened. And Gianni Pantino is one of the men who wrote those reforms. Uh, there's a Swedish connection there. Uh, the Assistant General Secretary, uh, Matthias Gafstam, he seems quite powerful. What's your view of his role? Well, he's very close to Gianni Infantino from the UEFA days. I think, again, it speaks to an organization where it is about um, patronage and relationships. Uh, I don't know um, Matthias particularly well, personally. I mean, I'm sure he's doing whatever he's he's doing but the issue is that you have a president that is all powerful who will surround himself with people that would more likely be rowing the boat in the same direction as him not really questioning um the president because i guess the, the nature of the structure of this all-powerful president means if you do you're probably going to be out and that that creates um i guess an institutional problem of of this nodding dog issue, right? Where everyone with you is just nodding along and 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 you're not getting that kind of um internal criticism to, to maybe guide some of your decision making. I think with 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 this FIFA we, we see a lot of that. Most of the people around Gianni Infantino are the people he knows and trusts are his people from UEFA. It's not like a broad church of um you know football or or global elite characters that can shape this this organization it seems to be the people that Gian Infantino knew and liked um and one of the slogans Infantino has used over time is like um has been about um football for the world FIFA is for the world not for Europe you know he's been very much on this bandwagon but if you see everyone or most people in the most senior positions they all seem to be European people he knows. So I'm not sure whether the, the world's expertise is being is being um used in that in that in that way um that he might have at least been projecting for his vision of football.
uh, when I've covered FIFA, I've uh, before Infantino I experienced that you at least could get some answers if you asked questions as a journalist, and you could go to the FIFA hotel during the World Cup and meet up with people. Now, when I tried to get into the hotel in Qatar, it was no no media, no nothing. What's your view? Is FIFA more closed? Yes, in a word, from a communications perspective, it's very, very, very difficult to um, access individuals or to get a response in a timely manner to questions. And the responses you often get are sometimes completely at odds with the question you asked. So, um, you know, you could ask about, I don't know, let's, let's just make a basic example. What's the weather like today? Well, it's about the time is 3.30. And you said, well, I didn't ask about the time. You asked about the weather. You, you, you are not often getting a response to the question you're asking. Um, and if you do, it becomes, um, it's not coming in a timely manner. I don't know what that speaks to. Is there a paranoia of the press? Is there a, um, a frustration? Some of that frustration you could see in that press conference you alluded to, the 58 minutes, where... where um, Infantino took aim at the, the the media in there, and also in one of his early press conferences, he he um, angered a lot of the media. I think when it, whether it was in Bahrain or where he he took this kind of Trump line of fake news, and um, seemed to try and create a separation between the media and FIFA and the media and the public. The the I'm I'm curious to 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 see what and why the um, how the why the communication strategy is as it as it is we've seen um different communications directors over the years um we now see him posting on instagram maybe that's his direct to public approach i'm not sure that's been completely successful with this great friendship for example we was first seen on uh, social media with salt bay the turkish I don't know what you describe as a restaurateur, this guy uh, who celebrity chef. On <laughs> um, celebrity chef, why not? You know, and that ended in tears where this this friendship is exposed in the most high profile way at the World Cup final, where this guy seems to be causing chaos after the World Cup final, and he's directly linked to the FIFA president. And again, why do we know about this relationship? Because of I guess these posts on on, on social media um, ask a, ask me for the question about it. <laughs> I'm still waiting for a reply. Um, yeah. you no know, this was in December. No uh, an investigation, surprise, an investigation has started, and like many of these investigations in sport, they kind of disappear into the cupboard, and <laughs> we don't know what happened. Uh, in Kigali, in March, he will be elected uh, again, and he. Uh... Apparently, the first three years as FIFA president won't uh, count, so he can sit uh, for eight more years. Do you think we have the Infantino for at least eight more years? There's a, obviously there's a possibility, but let me again take you back to Gianni Infantino, member of the FIFA Reform Committee, 2015 or 2016. He put his name to a document that says no FIFA president should. Uh, be in office longer than 12 years, whether in consecutive terms or in total. Now we have Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, who has maybe aspirations to be there for 15 years. Um, I don't know. Is it the is it 
Is it the man or is it the office? What 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 creates this? Uh, Olaf Lund, FIFA president. Will you be the same person? I don't know. I I doubt it. Uh, if you get all that power, maybe you're uh, kind of high on it. Another election is coming up. Alexander Shaferin is going to be elected again for uh, UEFA. Uh, how? What's your view of him as a chairman? I, I, you know, very, very different. Again, but the, the issue is this again. He's, there's no candidate. And this is the bigger problem. Why is there no candidate? You don't have to like or loathe someone. But for democracy, it's good to have different ideas, different visions. Um, we have Gianni Infantino standing unopposed, even though, look, here's a good example on, on this. The South Americans, certainly at communable level at one point, it's very clear that they were, did not like Gianni Infantino the last couple of years. Then you see in public this unanimous statement that they're in support of him. How, why, how? Like, this is not clear. And this isn't great, good for football. And you look at UEFA, you're talking about Alexander Sheffrin. Why no opponent? Why is he running unopposed? Um, Sheikh Salman, probably, in, in AFC. This is something that is, I think, unhealthy. Because at least with an opponent, you have a debate and you have, I guess, um, ideas for the development of football, some of the issues we've touched upon now. But when you just have the same candidate going again because people are happy or, or too nervous of upsetting the status quo, that to me speaks to a structural failure of football. Um, UEFA, I'm sure, has many issues too. I mean, look, you look at, we had three major finals, for example, the Euro 2021 final UEFA in London, major crowd disturbance, you had an issue in Seville, the Europa League, another UEFA competition. And now you have this almost near disaster in Paris at the Champions League final. That speaks to some issues that really need to be addressed. And, you know, why the UEFA is very lucky no one got seriously hurt in any of these places. Um, this is under the watch. And if you become the president, these are the questions you have to answer. The, the, the thing is, in terms of press conferences and, and um, public appearances of all of these guys, they're, they're, they're kind of few and far between, I would say. You know, um, I guess people like us, we go to these places and we might be lucky to grab someone in a hotel lobby, but it's by, by, by luck more than design. The, the, this kind of lack of transparency around these organizations. Uh, it's, it's huge. It's, it's very difficult to get answers to even ask questions. I mean, it's one thing what you get for answers, but it's uh, very difficult just to pose a question to Schaeferin or whoever it is who's yeah, running. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what, what they're doing with financial fair play at club level. Um, why major teams seem to always get away with it over 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 this period. Um, and again, these organizations are insider organizations that the people broadly you put around you are, um, and I would say this across football, whether it's UEFA, FIFA and AFS, it seems to be, and there are good people at all of these organizations as well, let me be clear, there are good stuff, but I think for in the leadership of all of these places, trust over competence seems to be the main, main 
um, characteristic on a CV. Will I trust this person? Will he be loyal or loyalty, sorry, over competence? And and that's what is what we're seeing. Uh, we have uh, from uh, the Nordic countries. We have Karl Nilsson who's been uh, in the UFA executive committees there for two more years, and Jesper Müller from DBU. Those two actually uh, in uh, on the last UEFA Congress kind of suggested that Cheferin should be uh, elected. And now we have something else from uh, the Nordic countries. Uh, Lisa Kavlanes from Norway. She's made quite of a rockers first in FIFA. Now she's running to get into the UEFA executive committee. I know that you had her on your podcast together with uh, Rob Harris and Martin Siegler. Sports Unlocked, so I can plug that. Uh, what's your, uh, what do you think she has uh, for chances of get, being elected? I think it's going to be, because of the football politics, I, would, you know, I think it's going to be very difficult because she's presented as a, an outsider in a way. But, you know, it's amazing that Lisa is seen as this kind of renegade, this, um, but her ideas are quite straightforward. It just shows you how conservative and how closed the football world is because she's speaking. Just the, the fact of who she is and she is speaking publicly about issues she cares about, which in the real world would be quite normal. But I guess in, in, our, in the closed football world, Lisa's seen as some kind of... Uh, um, renegade or some sort of rebel it's she's perfectly normal her like there's no there's no like burn the house down ideas from lisa i don't think she she just is is talking about transparency and 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 um developments in in, in the game and, and things that are broadly down the middle do you see what i mean but the fact yeah. That she's Definitely. doing this is is seen as this kind of um, um, oh wow, Lisa, what's going to happen? You know, it's kind of shaken the 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 the, um, the 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 world of football politics in a way. I mean, the the other thing with Lisa, which I found interesting, and it speaks to, it's like, will she go for the women's position? Like, why should she? What? This is this idea that there's, there's a position just for the women. Lisa, she's a national FA president. She's got right the same right as everybody else. Yeah, and why it, should there just be one, one, uh, one? No, you know, it's the women 2023, the and they have one yeah. position for the women, and the rest for the men. It's incredible. It, it, it seemed, um, and I'll give you this kind of example. Not at UEFA. There's this case in in AFC in Asia, where um, the women were told, you. You must go for the, the the women's exco position. That's that's the point that was reserved for you, um, and that election was directed by the now um, disgraced um, Sheikh Ahmed of Kuwait, who was the king master of the whole thing. He picked everyone who should be on these getting the seats, including the women's position, and every single person on his list got the place. And it was only questioned at CAS by. Um, the representative from the Maldives, Mary Mohammed, brave in some way to take this case on it. The whole point of this women's seat was say at least there is one woman. And, and what we're not seeing is this at least element. The one woman means, okay, we have one, ignore everybody else. This is There's so much uh, that still needs to be uh, developed. And there is still so much that looks the same like it always has um, after all of these years. Last question before I let you go. Um, 
do you have any hope for the football world uh, with FIFA, UEFA? For me, it seems kind of like hard to change FIFA. And without changing these organizations, there can't be any change for football. Yeah, I think in the present system, I think it's very hard to see any drastic changes because of, like, even you talk to people at FIFA who uh, would like to deal with this uh, development system that one, one, all the members get the same money, but they know that the, as soon as they say, we're going to change this, they'll be elected out. Um, you, you, it's a structural failure that I don't believe can be fixed from within. You kind of need external power, European Union or the Swiss government. But again, I don't think it's going to happen, to be honest with you. You know, if 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 the Department of Justice <laughs> arresting the vice presidents of FIFA and carting them off from that hotel and then shipping them off to the US and, you know, sending them to jail, if that can't reform FIFA in any big, meaningful way, you do wonder how it's going to be reformed if, like, the US, for all its power and what it did, it kind of just replaced a group of people. I think what we've seen the last of, thankfully, in a positive sense, is that more overt, grubby level of corruption, that kind of style of just rampant stealing. I think those days, at least, are gone. I think um, you've got to be a little bit cleverer to steal the money than you did in the past. Um, so, you know, is that positive news? I hope I've given you something positive there. I don't. Uh, it's it's at, le at least a little step or a small step. And uh, I uh, always, it was uh, kind of when you saw the Netflix documentary on FIFA, you saw Lennart once on, on the floor in Paris. I was there where he said, I haven't promised anyone anything. And of course, he wasn't uh, uh, elected. He wasn't elected. That's, that, that's kind of like that, if you don't promise anyone anything, you won't get elected. Thank you very much, uh, Tarek, uh, for taking your time. All right. Podden är som vanligt producerad av Max Rishna och klippt av Daniel Eriksson. Och vi vill gärna höra vad ni tycker och tänker och allt vad det kan handla om. Mailas enklast till mig, olof.lund.tv4.se eller skriv till mig på Instagram eller Twitter. Och då är det Olof Lund som gäller i ett ord. Stort tack för den här veckan. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.